Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Show podcast. Coming up is Donald Trump at NATO in the UK and a look ahead to the Helsinki summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Yesterday in Winnipeg, Federal Immigration Minister Ahmed Hussein derided the Ontario Cabinet Minister responsible for immigration. First it was just Saskatchewan, then Ontario, and now PEI have made it three provinces refusing to collect a carbon tax and an open defiance of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The 2018 U.S. Northern Border Strategy, what does it mean for this country? And developing an effective strategy to remove criminal and security deportees from Canada. You're listening to our Saturday podcast, The Roy Green Show. Frank Gaffney is the founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C. He's a former assistant U.S. Secretary of Defense in the Reagan administration. And uh, he was brought back to the White House by the current National Security Advisor, John Bolton, for some input. Mr. Gaffney, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's my pleasure to be with you, Roy. Thank you. How do you feel when you hear what I just said, that a newscast features somebody who says having Donald Trump as president is something like having a serial killer in your family? It constitutes, it seems to me, an incitement to violence. And unfortunately, this particular individual, whoever that was, uh, is not alone. It is something that is being expressed by any number of people. Um, Maxine Waters comes to mind. Uh, I think Hillary Clinton probably qualifies with some of the -the over-the-top things that she's just said about uh, Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. Um, There is no responsibility being taken for the kind of, uh, I believe, unjustified, but more to the point, um, incendiary, uh, in fact, uh, lines of of, uh, uh, expressions about uh, people in public office. And um, we're we're watching this play out in microcosm now as uh, individuals who work for the president are increasingly now uh, being uh, uh, at least verbally assaulted. Fortunately, it hasn't come to blows just yet, but um, but driven out of restaurants and so on. And I, I think we're we're not too far from um, actual physical violence uh, being the upshot mm-hmm. of these kinds of comments. And I think it's uh, condemnable and. Uh, uh, and ought to be repudiated by uh, Democrats as well as Republicans. No, it should be. It should be. We spoke with the managing editor of Rasmussen polling uh, last week, and 31% of Americans feel that sooner than later there's going to be a second civil war in the United States. That's a worrisome number. But let me ask you this. When you, uh, as you observed the NATO meetings and what was going on there, uh, you would have been extremely familiar with the NATO situation when you were in the Reagan administration. 
how did you what did you come away with as far as Mr. Trump's performance is concerned and as far as NATO itself is concerned? It seemed to me to be more of a uh, and a timely uh, call for people to pay their bills uh, by the president of the United States. But what did you come away with? You know, Roy, it was a long time ago. I had the privilege of serving as the uh, chairman of what was called the high-level group of NATO, uh, which gave me an opportunity to work very closely with our NATO allies. And and during that time, let's be clear, uh, there was a fairly um, unanimous concentrated mind, shall we say, a collective mind, if you will, uh, with respect to the threat from what was then the Soviet Union. Um, a nuclear threat, a threat of, uh, of conventional forces uh, and, uh, you know, ideological subversion and the like. So people were pretty um, cognizant of those dangers and uh, working more or less together to try to contend with them. Um, the Berlin Wall fell some years later. Uh, the uh, NATO alliance, uh, I think, became uh, convinced that uh, there was no longer any danger posed by Russia. And for many years, there there really wasn't much. But that's certainly no longer the case. And I think that what the president was doing in basically putting the wood to our NATO allies was uh, was a necessary corrective. And I, I welcomed it, uh, not just the expression of the need for them to honor their commitments and increase them to defense spending for the collective defense, but also to uh, not put themselves in positions where they're enriching the people that are threatening them, as well as becoming more dependent upon them for energy or, or for other reasons, mm-hmm. uh, notably the Germans. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had longer time scheduled with you, and then a couple of things happened in this country that we need to talk about. So I just have one more question for you today, but I hope you'll come back. The question that I want to ask you is, what are you expecting out of the Monday meeting in Helsinki between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin? I've been saying that it really is a, a meeting between the two alphas on the world political stage. What are you looking for? Well, I'm sorry to say there are a couple of other alphas, uh, not only Xi Jinping in China, but uh, of these two, I would say that I think as long as the president is rooted in the reality of what Russia is up to, um, whether that is an immense and very ominous nuclear weapons buildup, completely unmatched by the United States, by the way, um, whether it is uh, the effort to insinuate its uh, its forces and and its influence in large uh, in other parts of the world, including in our own hemisphere, as well as Syria and, of course, Ukraine, um, or whether it's the the acts of subversion that the Russians have engaged in. Now, look, we get a lot of talk about um, in terms of our democratic elections, but that's not the only example of it. I think as long as the president has those kinds of um, activities of Vladimir Putin squarely in mind, um, this is perhaps going to be at least an honest, uh, as they say in the State Department, exchange of views. Um, if the president is consumed with the idea that he will charm Putin or that uh, the personal chemistry will somehow trump all of the differences, if I can use that expression, over, uh, between the two men and their countries, um, I, I think it could be a net setback. Uh, I'm very much hoping he'll take the first course and not the latter. All right. Mr. Gaffney, thank you so much, and I do hope you'll come back. There are many questions I have for you. Happy to do so. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
Hit up Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want when you want it. Mr. Hostin is the federal immigration minister, citizenship and immigration, and Ms. McLeod is his provincial counterpart in Ontario. And there was a situation that developed yesterday, and you've probably heard about this, that uh, on the Ontario delegation did not agree with Mr. Husson and felt the federal government should pick up more of the costs for the uh, arrivals, the, what does the prime minister call them? Irregular arrivals to uh, Ontario. And the federal government says, no, this is a shared responsibility. Now, Ontario and Saskatchewan, neither one of the provinces agreed to sign the final document from that meeting. But the, it was the issue of, uh, of, of un-Canadian, and Lisa McLeod wants Mr. Husson to apologize to her for that reference. Michelle Rempel is the Conservative Party uh, immigration and citizenship critic, shadow minister. She heard Mr. Husson's remarks, and uh, some in mainstream media, Michelle, are suggesting it wasn't insulting at all. I, I don't know how you call somebody or even infer someone is un-Canadian. Uh, someone like Lisa McLeod, whose grandfather fought at Vimy Ridge, uh, and because they don't agree with you. Yeah, well, I was actually there in Winnipeg uh, for this exchange, and uh, I can confirm that the federal immigration minister was indeed arrogant, uh, condescending, and in no way uh, demonstrating the type of leadership needed to build a positive relationship between the federal and provincial governments. Um what I think the Trudeau government strategy is right now is because they have some... Look, Ontario is feeling the brunt of uh, dealing with the fallout of the illegal border crossing crisis in that the homeless shelter capacity in major cities are well oversubscribed uh, because of people heading to these places. Uh, Immigration Minister McLeod yesterday talked about how, uh, by her calculation, uh, the cost for welfare just, I believe, for this year for uh, asylum seekers who had legally crossed the border uh, was in the $90 million range. Um, that I think it was completely eminent for her to, or, or responsible for her to say, look, how, how are we going to pay for this? But the Trudeau government is trying to shift the focus away I, uh, f- from the reality of the situation. I think they're becoming increasingly desperate uh, in, in, in trying to keep up the facade that everything is fine. And I think that they lost, um, they sort of had cover with the Kathleen Wynne government because they were of the same stripe. And so instead of dealing with the problem now, you've got the immigration minister. I mean, listeners just heard his comments. I mean, he called her un-Canadian and he called her a fear monger and he called her divisive. I was standing right there. Um, So, you know, to me, it's actually, well, it's actually the liberals that are causing the divisiveness, because I think if they came back and said, look, we put forward hashtag welcome to Canada, we haven't um, put anything in place that would solve the demand on the system or close the loophole in the safe third country agreement that's enabling the strain on the system, uh, we're going to partner with the provinces to at least deal with the situation of people that are here. Uh, they, they, I just I have not heard them admit once that there is an issue or a problem um, and I think that they are just trying everything possible to, to just obfuscate and move away from this. It's like that, you know, gif of the dog saying everything is fine and the room is burning down. 
And I just think it's really unfortunate because now they are being divisive in their comments. And I think a lot of Canadians have lost faith in this government's ability to manage our immigration system. And that's where you're getting really uh, polarized rhetoric from the Liberals. There's also, I think we saw what we're going to be seeing between now and the 21st of October of next year. And that is the Trudeau government attacking at every opportunity the Ford government because they no longer have the cover of the liberals of Kathleen Wynne because they were utterly destroyed by the Ford uh, conservative party. And so they're going to take every opportunity to attack the, uh, the Ford administration. Trudeau did that last week when he suggested that Premier Ford didn't really know what the difference was between immigration and, and, and refugee policy. And they also, I think, w- yesterday, they wanted everybody, I'm sure, I mean, I'm not telling you something you don't know, but they wanted everybody to be, uh, to appear on side, they being the liberals, being Hussein, they wanted everybody to appear to be on side with their vacuous non-policy at the border. And so now if Ontario's not going to sign and Saskatchewan didn't sign, that really makes it less than unanimous and they don't want that at this point. So it, exactly. it, got, it got really ugly, didn't it? So I, I guess there's two points on that. This is why um, the federal conservatives, led by um, you know Andrew Shearer and myself as an immigration critic, we've pushed and forced the Liberals. We used parliamentary procedure to force the Liberals uh, to decide whether or not to have an emergency session of the Citizenship and Immigration Committee to review the like 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 a partisanship aside, Roy. Like, there are hundreds of millions of dollars that are being asked for by the provinces to maintain the situation that are not in the budget. So as a parliamentarian, and again, regardless of your political stripe, your job is to scrutinize federal government expenses. And I don't understand how much this is going to cost or if Houston is going to have to go out every two weeks and throw hundreds of millions of dollars around to deal with it. There's no plan. And I want to see a plan. So we're forcing that meeting for them to decide about this on Monday you know, for your listeners, uh, I encourage you to contact a liberal MP and, and tell them to have this meeting. I think it's important, uh, again, regardless of political strike, to scrutinize public expenditure. And then the second thing, you know, you know, you said it got hot, didn't it? It did. And I mean, this is not out of um, out of character for this minister. I mean, you and I have talked about exchanges that him and I have had in the House of Commons um, in his approach when he's questioned on his actions. Uh, you know, he, he can be in his approach very condescending and very arrogant. And, you know, Lisa McLeod has, I saw her on Twitter today, you know, she's she speculated a little bit about whether or not her gender had something to do with that. I'm not going to get into that, but I, I his approach with me as, you know, sort of his counterpart on the opposite end of the side of the house has always been very condescending. Um, and I just think that Canadians are now at the point where they're like, look, this is this is not acceptable. My job as the opposition critic of the federal government is to scrutinize government expenditures and, and the lack of a plan. That is actually my job. That is what you pay my salary to do. And uh, like just the, the dripping condescension and arrogance on this topic it really, to me, is the antithesis of how we need to be treating this situation. These are people's lives. These are taxpayer dollars. And the federal government has no plan. So I think, you know, he needs to quickly change his tone on this issue, acknowledge the fact that there is a crisis situation in parts of the country with regard to this issue, and that it is incumbent upon them to come up with a plan to both manage uh, the situation for people that are in the country, 
and then ensure that there isn't continued strain on the system by looking at legislative options to, to, to close the loophole that is allowing this to happen. That's not what we heard in Winnipeg. And I, I, I know Lisa very well. I've known her for years. I know Jeremy Harrison from Saskatoon or, or from Saskatchewan, the immigration minister there. These are not unreasonable people. Mm-hmm. These are very pragmatic people. And I, I know that they would not walk away from a negotiation right. if there was a partnership to be had. Okay. So I, I just find it crazy. Michelle, thank you so much for the time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Michelle Rempel, conservative critic for immigration and citizenship. The Roy Green Show podcast, ready and waiting for you anywhere, anytime. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Play today. With us uh, is the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moen. Mr. Premier, I thank you very much. You, you heard me say that our next guest uh, might not be available, and you stepped into the breach. You called us earlier. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think I've been on your your uh, show a number of times, and I have yet to call in on time, so I didn't want to change that. <laughs> hey, you did great last time, and you gave us lots of time on the air, so I appreciated that. Premier, what yeah, do you make you. what do you make of what's what went on yesterday in Winnipeg with Mr. Husson uh, saying what he said to Lisa McLeod, his provincial counterpart from Ontario? She wants an apology from him. And uh, he doesn't seem inclined to want to give an apology and says it's everybody's shared responsibility. Your province and the province of Ontario didn't sign the final communique. What is, what's your position? What's Saskatchewan's position on all of this? Well, it, it is, uh, you know, housing is a shared responsibility, but the policy around, uh, around uh, um, uh, refugees coming into the nation uh, has, is not a shared responsibility when it's changed uh, by the federal government or when they, they go a different direction. And, and, we saw this in, in Saskatchewan uh, during the year 2016 um, with an increase uh, in refugees that we took into our province. And we had, uh, uh, you know, great troubles in the in the nation of Syria. And us as Canadians stepped up to uh, receive, uh, you know, refugees from that from that country. And uh, and uh, in Saskatchewan, we took uh, on a per capita basis uh, more than more than our share, uh, actually, of, of 25,000 Syrian refugees or even in, in, in excess of that. Um but where where the uh, conversation is is about when you change the policy to increase uh, the individuals that are coming in, you should then uh, back that policy with with finances. Um, that 2016, uh, we were short about 15 million dollars in in from the federal government in in uh, supporting uh, you know those new Canadians. Um, but let me precurse all of that with this: um, at risk of uh, of being categorized as as being un-Canadian. Um, Saskatchewan is a province in this nation that has brought in 108,000 people, immigrants, um, from around the world since 2007. That's about about 10,000 a year. Makes up about 10% of our population, uh, as we're about 1.17 million people in, in, in the province. So by no means are we being un-Canadian, or by no means are we saying that we should not continue to bring people into this province. We should bring them in under the, the laws and the rules that we have. And we should bring them in uh, when policies change from time to time. The the federal government should be supporting uh, those 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 new Canadians here in our nation, not not putting it on the provinces to support their policy decision. It really is arrogance, isn't it, for the immigration minister, the federal minister, to really not not just suggest, but in fact state that unless you agree with his government's point of view and his government's position, that you're on Canadian. Well, I, I've been accused of being a climate denier when we have, uh, you know, actually a, a, a very bold and, and aggressive plan in the province of Saskatchewan 
um, but it's a plan that doesn't include a carbon tax. And there's been the same linkages made there from time to time that if you don't agree with the carbon tax, uh, you're automatically a climate denier. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, that's true uh, not just in Saskatchewan, across uh, many provinces, and we're seeing more. And the same holds true for, for uh, you know, support for new Canadians. When you, when you change a policy to increase the amount of new Canadians coming into our nation, uh, in particular in, in certain geographic areas of that nation, one would think you would put your money where your mouth is and, and ensure that those new Canadians and the municipalities and the provinces where that's occurring uh, have the proper and appropriate funding uh, due to a decision that you, you have made as a minister, um, but they have the supports necessary. And so many of these people who are coming into Canada are doing it illegally. Uh, if our safe third country agreement with the United States actually covered the entire border, not just official border crossings, there'd be no question about turning them back. But Mr. Trudeau, unwisely in 2015, and perhaps with forethought, uh, invited everyone into Canada. So now we have the situation that we have, and uh, either the federal liberals are without answers or they're just seeing happening what they want to see happen. And uh, either way, Canadians deserve an answer. There's no reason for you to be called anything, uh, un-Canadian or, 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 or a climate denier. I mean, it's, it's just... It, it, it's, it's the height of arrogance, Premier. It's the height of Ottawa arrogance. Well, whatever, whatever the policy shift is um, that the, the federal government is making from time to time, we've seen it uh, when they introduced their carbon tax unannounced. Uh, the Prime Minister introduced that as, as environment ministers. I was one of them. Uh, we're meeting in Montreal. We now see, uh, you know, a policy shift with respect to uh, uh, people coming into the nation, refugees coming into into the nation. Uh, that policy shift, if, if the federal government is, is going to move in that direction, then they should put the funds in place to ensure that they are not just uh, offloading uh, these costs. And there are costs uh, to new Canadians um, in, in integrating them into uh, our societies and giving them every opportunity to succeed in our society. So when they are making uh, policy decisions that are affecting that, that they should they should put their money uh, in, into that. They should invest in, in those Canadians and those municipalities, mm-hmm. not dump it on the provinces, not dump it on, on, uh, on our municipal leaders. Well, this is what happens when you take a political party that had 32 seats in Parliament and you put someone in charge who has no experience, uh, none, except as a backbench MP or an opposition MP in the number three party at the time, and then suddenly he becomes the prime minister and we see what we've seen for the last two years. But let me get to the issue of, uh, of, um, of, of the carbon tax. And now we have Saskatchewan. You, you were the first province to stand up and say, we're not going to play ball as far as collecting the carbon tax is concerned. Not that you're saying we're not doing anything to protect the climate. You just said we're not going to collect the carbon tax. And, and you quite clearly spelled out to the federal government why that was the case. Uh, I saw the Premier Wall do that. I've heard you do that. But now we have Saskatchewan joined by Ontario and Doug Ford, the uh, new progressive conservative party premier, and Prince Edward Island saying similarly, we have uh, a, a, an aggressive policy in place to provide support for the climate, but we don't believe we should be collecting tax, a carbon tax, from our citizens, and we won't do it. So now it's three provinces. What kind of pressure are you under from Ottawa? Uh, you know, we're, I'm under pressure uh, from the from the people of the province of Saskatchewan in, in non-enacting, uh, you know, policies that are, you know, are in my mind, foolish. Uh, they, they don't work. They don't reduce emissions. And what they do reduce is jobs in, in our communities across the province. So 
you know, we our stance has been firm from day one. Uh, when I go back to that that uh, that meeting in Montreal when the Prime Minister stood and enacted uh, this policy, we see now Ontario uh, Ontario uh, uh, residents have voted in a government uh, essentially on a number of, of issues. Um, one of them being competitiveness of the businesses and the jobs uh, that they have in the nation, but also one of those issues being uh, not adding to that uncompetitiveness with this ineffective policy of carbon taxation. We see. Prince Edward Island now uh, making statements that their their climate change plan won't uh, have a, a carbon tax involved. And I think as we get closer to where this fall, where the federal government is going to look at the plans, you'll see all of the Atlantic provinces essentially not have a plan that, that measures up to what the federal government has put forward with respect to carbon tax or cap and trade. Um, n- none of the plans in, in Atlantic Canada, at least, uh, are going to meet uh, those, those standards. So, so we have a... Um, you know, a serious conversation coming, and, and carbon taxation is, is one of them, but I would put forward that that uh, the, the competitiveness of our industries that create wealth in our communities across this nation is a much uh, broader and more important conversation that we have to have, and carbon carbon taxation, uh, an ineffective tax on, on these industries and jobs, is uh, but part of that conversation, and I would offer this. The Prime Minister uh, has an opportunity. We're hearing uh, rumors of a, of a cabinet shuffle coming here this week, and the Prime Minister has a great opportunity to reset his relationship with the provinces, at, uh, not a top-down uh, policy approach and a downloading of, of some of the costs of those policies, but uh, or, and, and his relationship with industry across, across the nation as we uh, need to readdress our competitiveness, ensure that we continue to do well sustainably and continue to do better sustainably, but ensure that we remain competitive with our with other nations around the world. And, and we'll be looking for that with the, uh, the, the rumored changes that are coming this week. And I think it's an opportunity for the Prime Minister. I most certainly hope, hope that, uh, that he takes it. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast hosted by Roy Green. Which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Let's talk about the competitiveness of this country. You you mentioned that, and you're in Atlantic Canada right now. Is there a sense that nationally, do you you get a feeling that the provincial governments understand, feel, and are concerned that we're not meeting our competitive requirements, even though we have all the balls to be um, successful, and we have the natural resources. We have everything in place, the infrastructure in place, to be far more successful than we are. We're just not meeting what we should be meeting. Is that the sense that you get? Well, I think I think we're at a at a, a fork in the road or a crossroads, if you will, when you when you look at the opportunities that we have with the resources that we have uh, in this nation. Our greatest resource, obviously. Uh, being Canadians, uh, that add value to every other resource that we have, whether it be, uh, you know, steel and making cars or uh, other manufactured uh, goods that we have here in the nation, whether it be a raw product like agriculture, but then bringing those products into uh, urban centers to add value to them and then and then uh, export those uh, to other areas all around the world. We have a, a, a number of different natural resources that we mine and that we uh, extract, including energy uh, resources, but also you know fertilizer, um, uh, uranium uh, in, in our province uh, to a great degree. And uh, we do this as, as well as, as anyone in the world uh, can. We do it as affordably as anyone in the world. And I, I always say we do it as sustainably as anyone in the world. That's the message that we need to bring to, to the world. And we can do that uh, through our federal government. Uh, we can do that through, through provincial uh, uh, leaders like myself. And I have been down in the U.S. a, a number of times in, 
in the last few months that I have uh, had the honour to serve the people of the province as, as Premier. I've been down there on Saskatchewan's behalf, but also on Canada's behalf. And what I see happening uh, in the U.S. is, is a, a backing up of, of corporate income taxes. Uh, what I see happening is a streamlining of, of environmental regulations and, quite honestly, the opposite of what I see being talked about north of the border. And we need to be aware of this. We need, we need to not put our head in the sand. We may not like it. Um, but we both certainly need to be aware of it, and we need to remain competitive, always do better um, with with our, our impact to the environment that we all live in. But we also need to realize what we have done as well and talk to our customers about it. I always say if you need another another boatload of, of, of agricultural or food products, you should buy it from Canada and Saskatchewan because of the way it was produced. If you need another a shipment of vehicles or manufactured goods or mine products, you should always buy it from Canada because of the way uh, that we produce it here in our nation. This, this is what we have to offer the world. Let's go do it. Let's go do it. And here it was actually a, a Twitter notification that I received, and it uh, reads this, and it's from At the Flatlands. Uh, you're right on the money. At Premier Scott Moe represents our province tremendously. He's a great premier, and we're lucky to have that have him. That was not solicited. That just arrived. I, I think that's mm. on the mark. I, I, I get the odd, the odd one the other way as well, but we, 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 <laughs> we try to listen to the people. Well, Premier, we have a lot to get done in this country, and uh, the rest of the world isn't going to wait for us. So the fact that we have everything that we need to be as competitively successful as we need to be, the fact that we have, uh, that we have the deputy chair of uh, a major Canadian bank on this program telling us, Frank McKenna, telling us that uh, we lost $117 billion over a 10-year period by selling our oil at a discount to the United States. All of this should ring the bells mightily in every provincial capital and in the national capital. Always great, great speaking with you, Premier. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roy. I appreciate it so much. You have a great weekend. Take care, you too. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast. 100% free. 100% Roy. Scott Newark. Um, it's really good to us with his time. Former Alberta prosecutor served as an executive officer for the Canadian Police Association, director of operations for the investigative project on terrorism, and uh, as a security policy advisor to the governments of Ontario and Canada. Currently, he's an adjunct professor in the TRSS program in the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. And uh, everything that I know about Canada's justice system, I've said this many times, I've learned from uh, my developed friendship with Scott over, God, it's getting close to 30 years. I, I could be a lawyer now. As long as you're not a defense lawyer. No, no, I can be a prosecutor. That's I've learned correct. from you how to prosecute. That's correct. You've made me a better talk show host because you've taught me how to prosecute. Well, actually, um, I was, when I was looking at some of these cases, I was thinking back on the one in particular. Um, over the years, frankly, how you have in your show uh, have made issues about the lack of performance or the need for changes in our justice system, which has been such a critically important part of actually getting the changes done, which is why it's when you see some of the defects that continue that's, uh, frankly, so uh, angering. Well, let's look at a story. This wasn't going to be what we would start with today, but we can, we'll get to, uh, to the northern border strategy and what it means for Canada, the U.S. northern border strategy. But uh, you sent me a, a, an email, and I'm absolutely 
<laughs> I'm blown away because it reminds me of what we used to do, which was just another week in the Canadian justice system. A repeat sex offender who committed crimes while on parole uh, gets kept for a full sentence and then properly placed on an 810.2 supervision order in mid-February. In April, he gets arrested for breaching the conditions of the order, which is a crime, but gets released on bail and then gets arrested yesterday for again breaching the conditions, which is another crime, plus the offense of breaching bail, but he gets released on bail again. <laughs> you know, you, you, when you hear people talking about our catch-and-release justice system or the revolving door justice system, this case just makes you shake your head. And in particular, this is the, the kind of an order, and I'm not sure that whoever was reporting on this was fully aware of it, but this order that this guy was placed on was something that uh, you, both you and I were involved in, uh, in getting uh, changes made to our uh, federal law. It goes back to the uh, early 90s, and a, uh, the abduction and uh, rape and murder of a young boy, Christopher Stevenson, mm-hmm. by a career criminal named Joe Fredericks. And back in those days, um, you know, literally when somebody was so dangerous that they uh, shouldn't be released from custody if they were serving a sentence, um, they were released because, uh, as they and, and Fredericks even referred to it as the blackmail theory, if you don't release me with conditions uh, and keep me from my full sentence, which lawfully we can do, then I'll have to be released without any conditions and I'll be really dangerous. So the idea was that it was better to do this. Uh, and we literally were at a point that we had to wait for another victim before the system could intervene. Mm-hmm. So I was very much involved and I worked very closely with then Justice Minister Alan Rock and Solicitor General Herb Gray to convince them. and. To their immense credit, uh, because they uh, went against the advice of their officials, we made changes to the criminal code that created these special uh, supervision orders. They were based on an old, old historical uh, order that I had uh, seen when I was a prosecutor in Alberta, and we tweaked them so that when somebody was kept for their full sentence and was deemed to be dangerous, which that's the same legal criteria for keeping somebody for their sentence, like this guy was, that the Crown could go to court and get these specialized orders that had conditions on them. They were just like, say, a bail order or a uh, parole or probation order. The difference, of course, was that if you breached the conditions, that was a crime. And in fact, now punishable for up to four years in custody. And this guy whose case you're describing, uh, Joseph Fay Akharan Joseph, he's somebody who served, he was convicted of uh, multiple sexual assaults, very violent sexual assaults. He would lure women to um, uh, locations pretending he had a dating, uh, he had some kind of recruiting service, and then recently that he was a doctor. And um, he was convicted of a couple of those offenses and sentenced. He was released. This would be uh, back around uh, 20, uh, uh, originally convicted, I think, in 2008, released a couple of years after that, re-offended very quickly afterwards. So he was brought back in, kept for his full sentence, and then the police after he was released, as you say, in mid-February, the police and the Crown go and get this specialized protection order, and then a couple of months later, he breaches the conditions again. But instead of actually you know, keeping him in custody, because it's an offense and he's entitled to a trial, the court releases him on bail, the Crown doesn't appeal, and now, a couple of months after that, he, he's done it again, and he's been released again. It is insane. So how would a prosecutor who doesn't appeal, how might 
a judge who makes a decision like this, explain it to a layperson and say, this is why what I did makes sense? Um, I would love to see the transcripts. I'd also like to find out whether or not, for example, the Crown consented to the release, because, oh, gee whiz, you know, we've got such a crowded justice system, and we don't want to just have people in. And it, it sounds like, as I read the media clips uh, and the, uh, the clips from the Toronto police, that he didn't actually physically assault any other women, but there were special conditions on him, you know, not to be on dating sites and not to have these identities, all of what are the precursors to the crimes that he's committed, which we've learned from his criminal history. So it would be a breach of those conditions. So, you know, I would love to, see, to read the actual wording of the decision to release, uh, assuming that somebody even bothered to articulate it, uh, because I bet you it's something like that. It's, oh, well, you know, this is there, there's no real indication here of any public risk or anything else like that, which is nonsense. That's the reason why these specialized sections were created, because the public should have a right to have a system that is better than simply waiting for the next victim. You know, you talked about Christopher Stevenson, who was a 12-year-old boy, who was abducted by Joseph Fredericks, who uh, at the time of his most recent, uh, at that time, um, sentence was described by uh, the psychiatrist or psychologist who analyzed him as someone who preferred torturing children to killing them and that he should never be released uh, without the doctor being um, contacted. So what the parole board did was they called the doctor's office and uh, and he wasn't there, but they felt that they'd done their due diligence because they spoke with his yeah. secretary. So they let Fredericks go. And, of course, he abducted Christopher Stevenson, kept him for a couple of days, and then murdered him. But the system was such a bloody mess, quite literally. And if you, if you remember as well, too, Roy, um, he actually moved and didn't notify the corrections officials, so they lost him. Yeah. He didn't know where he was. Yeah. That's one of the other changes we made was to yeah. create the sex offender registry. But what also happened, Scott, and I remember this from the inquiry, which they didn't want initially, or at least they didn't want to have the Stevenson family have their own lawyer, who turned out to be Tim Danson. That's correct. Um, they, uh, they found out that the parole officer who was assigned to this homicidal pedophile didn't know what a sociopath was. Yeah. Well, that's actually uh, how I first met Tim Danson was... Uh, uh, Christopher's parents asked for my help on uh, finding a lawyer. Yeah, uh, and uh, Tim was excellent. Well, you know, there's there's the story I've shared with you, and I may have shared it on the air. Um, Doug Lewis was yes. then became the Attorney General and Solicitor yes. General, sort of the Super Justice Minister of Canada. And I was I'd had uh, Tim Danson and uh, Christopher's father uh, in the studio. What was his first name? Jim. Jim. Yeah. So Jim Stevenson and and Tim Danson were in studio, and they were talking about the federal government saying, no, we're not going to provide you any funding for Mr. Danson's fees. We don't think that you have to have your own lawyer as the family of the murdered child. Uh, The government lawyers can represent you and the government. So we raised Hades about this on on the air with Jim Stevenson and Tim Danson here. And I got a call that evening from the press secretary to the super justice minister, Doug Lewis, the minister wants to come into the studio and set you straight. So I said, well, that's fine. When can you come? They said, we'll be there tomorrow. Great. So in he came, and he took it for two hours, Scott. 
He was attacked by me. He was attacked by callers. He didn't have any answers to any questions. He called Ottawa during commercial breaks to get answers, and I'd come back on the air and say, well, he called Ottawa again to get an answer to a question that I have the answer to, and he took it. And I got a call that evening from the press secretary, and he said, as we were leaving, Doug said to me, I really got it handed to me, didn't I? And he said, yes, you did, Minister. And Doug Lewis said, I deserved it. When I get to Ottawa, make sure that we have those lawyers who represent, or at least who advised me, waiting for me. So uh, that the next morning, early, I got another call from the press secretary saying, the minister wants to go back on the air with you by phone. So fine. He comes on and he said, look, just want to say this. We were wrong. Mr. Stevenson was right. Tim Danson was right. And by extension, as we know now, Scott Newark was right. Your listeners were correct. We were wrong. I apologize to the family. I apologize to Canadians. And we will fund the legal fees for the Stevenson family. And I thought that was that was such a great move that by, Doug, by Doug, Doug Lewis. Lewis. Yes, I agree. That was just a terrific, terrific move. Yeah. So. Well, you see, and again, I had similar interactions, as I mentioned, with then Justice Minister Alan Rock and Solicitor General Herb Gray, because yeah. their officials were, of course, in the same mindset that you understand, horrified that we might create this kind of a specialized order. I remember testifying when we brought the bill, and there were some NDP MPs who were aghast at the fact we were going to make this a crime. And I, de- I described it as, a, I like to think of it as life on the installment plan. Yeah, yeah, and that's what it was, and still well, is in some cases. It's a tailored tool, and that is what I find so discouraging, is that, you know, we've actually done a lot of work. It's been driven out of real circumstances, horrific circumstances, and we've actually made improvements in the legal tools available, mm-hmm. and then to see our justice system not use them? Mm-hmm. Yep. I'd like to get some uh, some answers as to exactly who did what on this case. And, you know, there are some some uh, men and women in prison who should be out, who would never cause a problem. Um, people in prison who administer the prisons know that, and they'll tell you that uh, quietly, to personally, without being a microphone being on. But they then don't get an opportunity to get out because there's such anger over what misfired, like in the case we started with. Yeah, yeah I think that is one of the real faults of our uh, correction system is that it, it uses, uh, in effect, a, a one-size-fits-all approach. Yeah, they sure do. Including in relation to rehabilitation. Yeah. Right? What's important is that somebody took the program, not whether they've changed their behavior. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. You wrote a piece um, titled The 2018 U.S. Northern Borders Strategy. What does it mean for Canada? What's going on? Um, this was released a couple of weeks ago. The Americans passed a statute in uh, 2016. It requires Department of Homeland Security to, in effect, release a report on uh, its uh, northern border strategy, how it intends to secure the border. And given the change in uh, presidency in the U.S. administration, I wanted to take a look at it and just see what was there, because this is a critical issue. As you know, I've been involved in these border security issues for years. Um, and so I went through the report. It's about a 41-page uh, report. Um, there's nothing particularly surprising when they're talking about what their operational goals are and the potential threats and things like that. But what is really, um, I found just mind-boggling, is that the report is virtually uh, silent on all of the work that has been done jointly by Canada and the U.S. since late 2010, early 2011, with the 
Beyond the Border strategy. We've got the Shiprider program, the Cross-Border Law Enforcement program. There's a one-sentence reference in very, very generic terms to the Beyond the Border agreement, but nothing of, of any of the specifics, nothing about uh, for example, how we've uh, extended the exit entry information sharing, how we've expanded the uh, pre-border clearance. This is a something that we've had a significant amount of success on in working um, collaboratively because I'm, you know, perhaps somebody in the White House is not aware of the fact, but it's not the border, the Canada-U.S. border doesn't belong just to the United States. It also is our border as well, too. So it is something that needs to be done collectively uh, to be successful. And the other one that is really weird uh, is, and you were talking about it uh, referentially just a second ago, there is absolutely no mention of the issue of all of the illegal entries coming from the United States and entering Canada. Not a word. And I, I tell you, what worries me about it, and I referenced it at the end, was um, if there's one description, I think, of the uh, the Trump administration is that it's not really... Uh, intent on pursuing collaborative, cooperative approaches, whether it's in uh, trade or whether it's in uh, the environment or in foreign policy. It's very much more sort of a unilateral approach. And that worries me if, in fact, that is the approach that they're planning on moving uh, towards, uh, because our success in this is when we do things together. And there's, you know, these are not issues that are going to be effectively dealt with unilaterally. Right. So I think it's something to that raises an eyebrow that we need to keep an eye on. Scott Newark, hey, I really always appreciate it, Scotty. Thanks so much for coming. Good talking to you. All the best. Bye-bye. Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, and you know the rest of Scott's uh, impressive CV. Thanks for listening. The Roy Green Show is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.